Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump, and it's summertime here in Iowa, and uh, probably where you are too. <laughs> so uh, I am I'm done talking about proof assistance now, which was interesting for me. I think the probably the biggest revelation was learning about MetaMath, but it was good to review a bunch of other provers and talk about those a little bit with you. And I want to talk about a bit of a different topic now, which I've gotten interested in. Um, I've always been interested in it, really, but I'm kind of feeling like I want to tackle it myself a little bit more these days. And that is memory usage in programs. Now, there's loads of different things you could try to study and um, work on on that topic. But I would like to talk about... I would like, I'm personally getting interested in doing re- in research on um, verifying correct manual memory management. Now, to, I, before I get into all that, and I plan to talk about papers and other people's work and stuff on this topic. So I guess this topic, I guess I'm going to call something like um, verified memory safety or something like this. Even that could, could cover a lot of different ground. Um, so as a little bit of background, I was, uh, you know, I just finished teaching my spring class here, undergrad programming languages class. And I always traditionally have talked about garbage collection algorithms a little bit that in that class, because, um, pretty much every functional programming language implementation that I'm aware of has a garbage collector. And I was kind of, you know, we were talking about different garbage collection schemes and, we looked a little bit at Haskell's garbage collection and, you know, like Haskell and OCaml both, you can turn on some um, flags at runtime and you'll, the garbage collector will sort of print out some information and show you what's going on. And we, I did a little test case. I think it was something like generate a big list of numbers, maybe just in reverse because I didn't want to deal with the random um uh, type class or whatever in Haskell and um, and sort them and then I forgot I think my example program just added them all up or maybe it picked the picked one that you specified and printed it out and we ran this and sort of watched what the garbage collector was going to do and I picked this kind of example as sort of kind of realistic I maybe would want to do something sort of like that um, and I definitely didn't feel like I had the insight into the garbage collector to figure out examples that would be better or worse for it. I mean, I was kind of hoping to find, I wanted to see the cost of garbage collection. And I was shocked. And I think even students were shocked at just how much time was going into garbage collection on this sort of baby example. It was something like 85% of the runtime was garbage collection. It was like, whoa. <laughs> and I always knew, you know, and there's a reason why garbage collection research continues you know, with some degree of heat and seriousness to this day, is because um, it's an enormously expensive operation, right? You're, you know, the idea, if you're not that familiar with this stuff, I mean, the background is your program's running, it needs memory to form data structures and to hold data and information that it's going to compute over, right? And so it gets memory from the runtime system, some library that's compiled in with your program or that's part of an interpreter or whatever. And ultimately, that runtime system is asking the operating system to let it use memory. And, uh, you know, and so the, your program is running along using memory and it, 
it can't just keep gobbling it up. Well, actually, uh, these days, you can buy computers that have a really, really lot of memory. Um, so, really, maybe you could just let it keep running. But even if you could do that, there would still be some reason to recycle your memory. When one part of your program is done with some piece of memory, it'd be a good idea to recycle it for things like cache locality so that you could keep... Um, keep those memory addresses in your cache system, which would give faster access to the memory. Um, so even if you had infinite memory, you don't have infinite cache. That's, I think, we can all agree on that. You could have memory that's virtually, you know, just so humongous that, right, we have disk, right? Disk, you can you twist this analogy further, right? Your disk can be very big. But if you've got your program paging using the virtual memory system and going to disk to, uh, to store things, your, your program's going to grind to a halt. Right. I just installed. I have some ancient computer at home, and I just installed. I swapped swapped out a four gigabyte um, memory, whatever it is called, for uh, two sixteen or two eight gigabytes to get up to sixteen gigabytes of memory. And man, my computer runs so much faster now. It was paging, trying to just use the stupid browser. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, right. But so even if you had loads and loads of memory, you don't have loads and loads of cache. Right? At the end, you don't have loads and loads of registers on chip, which are giving you your fastest access. So it would be a good idea to kind of stay within the same group of memory as much as you can. And so we recycle our memory. And in the battle days that continue to this day in C and C++, um, you would manage your memory manually. You, you call malloc or you call new to get some memory. And when you're all done, you call free in C or you call delete in C++. And as you know, if you programmed in these languages, um, this is just a nightmarish source of really obscure and horrible errors. And so it was a tremendous boost to programming productivity to have something just take care of all the memory stuff for you. In particular, take care of um, recycling memory when your program's done with it. Because manually saying, oh, I'm done, like having part of your code say, okay, I'm done with this piece of memory, it was a source of so many errors because you're more often, you know, from time to time, you one piece of code thought you were done, another piece of code is still using that memory, and you have horrible things where different pieces of code have inconsistent views of the same piece of memory because one thinks they own it, the other thinks they own it, and you get ex very difficult to debug bugs, which I personally suffered through many years ago, and many probably listening to this podcast have dealt with. And so, again, garbage collection algorithms basically hold out this beautiful promise of happy paradise fairyland where you don't have to think about reclaiming, recycling your memory. This algorithm will just do it for you. Awesome. But the bad thing is it's expensive. The algorithm is going to go through all the memory used by your program. Depending on the algorithm, I mean, there's different costs and trade-offs. I could just talk about garbage collection algorithms for a bit because I have sort of beginning-level knowledge of that topic. Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, these are algorithms that need to go root around for, for cells of memory that are allocated memory cells that are not accessible from a root of the reference graph. A root is like a local variable or a global variable, local variable instance on the stack or global variable. And so the algorithms are digging through your memory. Does that sound like that could be slow? Yeah, it sure does. And it is. Um, very slow and painful, despite enormous amounts of effort and engineering effort, research effort to try to make garbage collection algorithms run really fast, make them run concurrently, 
it's a really difficult problem. And it's also kind of an intimidating problem from a language implementation perspective. If you're kind of like, hey, I've got this cool idea for a new language. And, you know, it's kind of, yeah, but how's your code going to be at all, even remotely performant if you don't deal with garbage collection? And so you might be in this position of having to bite off the problem of writing a good garbage collector, which could be, I mean, basically you're going to lose. You're going to lose if you if you're going up against um, extremely brilliant engineers who spent decades working on this stuff, your garbage collector is not going to be as good as theirs. <laughs> if it is, hats off to you. <laughs> but for most of us, it's going to be a, a sand pit, and we're it's going to waste time, and we're going to not have as good a tool. So, but that's kind of the state of the art right now. And so, what I want to talk about in this chapter is: uh, could we improve on the state of the art? by verifying, you know, we, we've been talking about theorem proving, right? So let's pretend that we're not scared about trying to prove theorems about our programs. Could we prove theorems that imply that our program isn't going to, is going to correctly delete memory? I, I see sort of two parts of this problem. One is, could you write, um, could you prove that your program doesn't access memory after it's been deleted? Okay, that would be humongous. That would rule out a huge source of nasty bugs. But not the only source, because there's two ways that things go wrong with manual, manual memory management. One is you delete too much. <laughs> Another is you don't delete enough. Right? So memory leaks are when you, um, you, there's some memory your program isn't using anymore, but you don't recycle it. You do not call free or delete or whatever on that memory. And then that memory is just sitting there not getting used and it's piling up. You're, you're losing the benefits that we're arguing for of kind of cache locality and stuff like that of recycling your memory. Um, but, you know, this can happen. I personally experienced, um, you know, memory leak, one thing, but you can have a resource leak. So I, I have, we have this project here called Star Exec that is... Um, it's a service that um, people around the world use for running logic solvers um, on benchmarking them. And we have pretty good, we have like 200 nodes with a quarter terabyte of memory in each node, speaking of memory. And, but writing the code for this, we have, so it's like a web server you access, you can upload your solver and run it and stuff. And it's a, it's a heavily used service. We got a lot of activity. There's summertime, people run competitions on it and stuff. There's one running on it right now, a big one. And, um, but the code for this, part of the code is in Java and it needs to interact with the database um, to store information about what users are doing and whatever else. And when it does this, it needs to get database connections and there's basically, there's some kind of, the interface for this is like, you ask for a database connection, and then you do need to explicitly release the database connection when you're done using it. And it's back to the bad old days. It's kind of like manual memory management. You've got to release those database connections, or else you have a very, basically you leak them. And what happens when you leak them is that your server, like say one part of your code leaks these, but most, most parts don't leak them. Right, so some parts do. Some pieces of code leaks leaks a database connection, but a lot of parts are fine. Over time, you will leak a little bit and leak a little bit. You'll have fewer and fewer database connections. 
different accesses to the server will be waiting a little longer to get their database connection until finally it starts to grind to a halt and nothing's happening. Stuff is just sitting there. Nothing's being run. And I personally had to debug this several times and it's a nightmare. Okay, so leaking, whether it's memory or resources in general, uh, is a really, is a serious, really serious problem. It's less dramatically horrible than using memory that's been deleted. Uh, but it's still bad because you basically have no idea where the leak is. You have to just audit. I mean, well, there may be fancier techniques, but it's what I know is you just audit your code and try to see, oops, there's the place. We got a resource and we forgot to return it at the end or we had, didn't catch an exception that we should have and that made it get leaked, you know, whatever. So, so the two parts of verifying memory correctness that I see would be one, to prove about a piece of code that it doesn't... Um, it doesn't access deleted memory. That'd be one kind of theorem you'd like to prove. And the other is to prove that you don't leak memory. Um, that one, I don't, I'm not even 100% sure how to formulate that. That's kind of, yeah, it feels more like some kind of liveness property. Like eventually, if, I'm, if my program isn't going to use this memory, then it's going to get deleted. I mean, I don't, I'm not even sure how to formulate that. Probably people have thought about this, and that'd be something to look into. Um, as we try to do this chapter here on this topic. Um, and so anyway, now the, I just want to say one more thing to set up this chapter before it's time to go in and uh, to the grocery store. And that is, uh, you know, so verification of this property, you say, okay, you know, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get, let's get down to it. Let's verify this thing. It's not that easy because this is an intentional property of code. In other words, this is not, if you formulate a program, you know, like in, in like say you write it in the pr programming language of a caulk or an agda or something like that, um, just writing the program directly in there, there, it doesn't have a notion of deleting things um, of memory. Even if it did, uh, even if it did, this is like a non-functional property. It doesn't uh, it's not directly concerned with the input or output of the program. So, um, you know, we have sort of extensional properties that are about the input-output behaviors of things. And then we have intentional properties, which are things like the runtime. There's stuff about how a computation happens, not just about the results of the computation. So, um, to verify intentional properties uh, is much, much less well-studied and perhaps less well understood than verifying extensional properties. Um, just out of the box, a tool like Cockragd or Isabel or whatever is not set up to verify intentional properties of code. And you can't really even reason about the intentional properties of code uh, within these kind of tools. Extensionally, insertion sort and merge sort are the same. They have the same input-output behavior. Intentionally, one of them is n squared time, and the other is n log n time. But that sort of intentional difference, the difference in how the computation is performed, and the memory management deal is the same kind of thing. It's, it's just that it's a, it's a difference in how things are performed. I mean, the, you know, how I manage my memory could cause my program to crash or give it wildly wrong answers. Uh, but that you know, the explicit treatment of memory isn't part of the functional programming languages that these theorem provers give you. So you're going to have to model it somehow. And as I said, I'm aware of precious little work along these lines. I do, there's been some work, not very much, in verifying complexity of algorithms uh, in theorem provers. Uh, 
So, um, yeah. So, I, but I'm not aware. And there's also been some very hardcore work on verifying just programs that modify the heap. There's a lot of work actually on this using something called separation logic, which is uh, just kind of a logical formalism invented by John C. Reynolds. Oh my gosh, here he is again. We talked about his work earlier in uh, parametricity. Yeah, yet another brilliant contribution is devising a logic for explicitly reasoning about the heap, like the shape of the heap and everything. Um, and so, yeah, so we probably should talk about some of that, although that's a kind of a vast literature at this point. Um, I'm actually hoping for something. So I'd be curious to know, do separation logic people prove theorems about memory correctness, like that they you know, correctly manage memory? I actually don't know. I would assume the answer is probably yes, uh, but that would be good to learn about. But even if that is yes, the answer is yes, I'm looking for something a bit lighter weight because say you're in a pure functional programming land. Yes, yes, I know we have cyclic data structures in Haskell and stuff like that, but if you just said, I'm just content programming with inductive types, I don't need cyclic data structures. Um, you know, we, we don't need the full power of arbitrary reasoning about the heap, right? We could have something much more limited and hopefully more tractable. All right. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening and hope your summer's off to a great start and talk to you later.